Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like. It's rte.ie forward slash Mooney. So it's Sunday night and a busy bird programme ahead of us tonight in the company of Niall Hatch, who's at his home in Greystones in County Wicklow. Hello, Niall. Hi Derek, how are you doing? Exciting times to be a bird watcher at the moment. Lots of change happening, migration about to start, so I always look forward to this time of year. Don't we all? Now, I got an email during the weekend, it's very appropriate because it's quite timely. It says, hi Derek and company, that would be you and Aina and Rich and all the gang. It says, it's getting pretty sad these days in the countryside. This is the latest addition to hedge butchering, drainage ditches and tree removal. Yet, when asked about the environment, I'm sure all those involved will tell you about climate change and disappearing wildlife. When I moved here 50 years ago, I could see 56 species of birds within two kilometres radius. I'd be lucky to get 12 now. Last year, four swallows at the end of September. So sad. Kind regards from... Jan Mylart, who's a Navin and County Meath. So this is the time of year, Niall, when you're telling people to stop cutting hedges. Yes, that's right. So under the Wildlife Acts here in Ireland, from the 1st of March to the 31st of August each year, there's a prohibition on the cutting of hedges. Now, I should point out that there are certain exceptions allowed under the law for reasons of road safety, for example, and there are certain derogations granted to uh, local authorities, to semi-state bodies and so on, and also for uh, certain agricultural purposes as well. But the blanket general rule is that hedge cutting at this time of year is actually against the law. And that is mainly for the protection of nesting birds. And it's due to a European Union directive that requires member states all across the European Union to do this. Uh, And so that's why we're urging people to please respect the law and please to refrain from cutting hedges at this time of year. So, Niall, give me five good reasons why people shouldn't cut their hedges right now. Well, as we heard from Jan there, he's noticed there's been a decline in the number of bird species visiting the area. Uh, And that is very much tied to hedges and to intensification of agriculture because hedges are so important for us. So so number one, they're an important place for birds to nest. And that's quite obvious to most people. Uh, So people can see that if a bird is nesting in a hedge and then a flailing machine comes along and cuts through it or the hedge is removed, that nest is destroyed and that obviously causes a big problem for that bird. But then number two, the thing is that even if that nest survives and it isn't hurt by the machine in any way and the eggs and chicks are fine all of a sudden it's much more exposed to the elements and it's much more obvious to predators who now can see mum and dad bird coming and going and they can work out exactly where that nest is and they can find the chicks a lot of the thorns and the other protection has been removed as well so it's much easier for a predator to access it. Then number three, those hedgerows act as a conduit for those birds. So if you're a bird like a house sparrow for example or a tree sparrow, both species which are very much associated with hedges but don't like to to, to soar over the open countryside. Another bird called the yellow hammer, a beautiful canary yellow member of the bunting family, like a small yellow sparrow. They also do use hedges in the same way. What happens when hedges are destroyed? That means that these birds lose their motorways for getting from A to B. And so they end up confined to a small area. They can forage for food over a much smaller area. And there's not so much exchange of genetic material. They're not less likely to meet up with each other and mate and um, produce healthy offspring. So that's another problem when hedges are destroyed. Then number four, we have all the insects that are living in those hedges. Insects lay eggs as well and our hedgerows are home to all sorts of butterflies and moths and uh, and, and midges and, and all sorts of other insects as well that provide food for the birds but also which pollinate our crops and which are so important to us and for our lives and for all of you know for ultimately for our economy because our agricultural sector is so important to us and powered in many cases by insects and when we destroy hedges and when we don't respect them properly that reduces the populations of those insects which makes life harder for us humans and much harder for the birds as well, as well as for creatures like frogs that would feed on them, as well as for spiders that feed on them. That goes on and on like that too. Then number five, in the autumn time, a lot of those hedges, if they weren't cut during the summer, they would be covered in berries. And the birds choose their nesting locations based on the fact that there's going to be food for their chicks there in the autumn. And when the hedges are cut, even if the nests survive, that rug has been pulled out from under them, that food has disappeared and the birds are less likely to survive. Just give me those dates one last time, if you would please, Niall. 
Yes, so under Irish law, under the Wildlife Acts, from the 1st of March to the 31st of August, it's illegal to cut hedges. And people should should contact the National Parks and Wildlife Service if they have any concerns or if they see mm-hmm. people breaking the law. As I said, there are legitimate exemptions for reasons of road safety, for certain yeah. agricultural purposes. Uh, but uh, the, the general rule is 1st of March to the 31st of August, no hedge cutting allowed. More details on the website rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, you'll know that we've been looking recently at some of the books on the shelves of our distinguished bird experts and friends of Mooney Goes Wild? Well, this week we're featuring a real little gem by Mary Louise Heffernan. It's called Easy Guide to Garden Birds and it features 22 of the most common birds you'll find in your garden. Mary Louise, I'm delighted to say, joins us now from her home in Connemara and she can tell us all about the book herself, which came out over 10 years ago now. Anyway, Mary, thanks for joining us. Tell us about this book. Where did you get the idea? When did you write it? So basically, um, it was the summer of 2012 and I was doing a lot of breeding bird surveys out in Loch Carib. And my little girl was eight years old then. Her name is Elva. And Elva's very curious by nature. So she was asking me a lot of questions about birds and how to identify them. And um, she was trying to convince me that um, every red-breasted bird was... Uh, Robin and uh, I was trying to uh, show to her the fact that every red-breasted bird isn't a robin and I was showing her the chaffinches in the garden. She couldn't identify the chaffinch from the robin so I started looking for uh, for a bird book for her. And did you find one? Yeah so basically I had a look at there's a there's a really nice actually RSPB book but it, it it looks at um, all the different plumages and it's based on a guess who. Uh, but you'd have to know your plumages to, 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 to be able to identify the birds. So I wanted something simpler than that for her. So I looked for a bird book that, that would be really something super simple and I couldn't find it. So I started pulling together just some notes um, on you know, how to identify birds. And I make, for her birthday then, I made her up a a little bird book so that the two of us could basically sit at the kitchen window and look out at the birds on the feeder and to be able to tell, you know, the chaffinches from the robins and the blue tits from the coal tits. And um, it was such a simple book that... uh, um, some other people asked me, could they get a copy for their for their granny and for their mum and, you know, for their sister's kids and that sort of thing. So I did a small print run and I've been basically publishing this ever since then. I, there's There's been a lot of interest in it. A lot of people who wouldn't be bird watchers find it a good kind of gateway book, I suppose. Well, can you tell me how I can distinguish between the tit family now? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> well, I suppose kind of there's the great tit then, which would would be like the largest of them that would have um, black head um, with um, mainly green on the back. Um, and then the, the blue tit, which would be very common. Um, it obviously is. It's very blue. Then its head is blue. It's got blue down the back and it's got uh, the pale cheeks. Whereas the little cold tit is much more muted in colour kind of orangey buff coloured um, but the key identifier then for for that one would be the cold tit has a white stripe on the back of its head so trying to pick out then the the various features that would identify that particular bird like the other member then of the tit family would be the long tail tit and the long tail tit it's its tail is longer than its body and it's nice little kind of roundy sort of bird so all of those features are very they're very easy features for for be- beginners for kids to pick up and i found that in no time elva was able to to identify um, certainly she was able to identify the difference between a robin and a chaffinch anyway. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I, this book is really appealing to me, let alone a nature old Elva. But can you describe it for your listeners? How do you represent these birds and how do you guide then the children who are using this book through all of those little identification markers, if you like? Yeah. So so basically it is, uh, it's a bird book that probably doesn't have more than about 200 words in it. It's very, very simple bird book. It's mainly a picture book, really. So it's got photographs of the birds. And if the male and the female are different, for example, um, an example of that would be would be the like the, the blackbird where the, the, the female blackbird is brown and the male blackbird is black with the orange beak. Then the male and the female are shown um, 
as photographs. So it's basically um, a photograph book and uh, there is it's broken down into things like, for for example, looks. What does the bird look like? Like for a wren, the key thing you'd be looking for with a wren is small bird, sticky up tail, tiny little bill for picking out insects. And um, Whereas if you're trying to identify something like, say, a rook, you'd be looking at a much a big black bird with a long, a long grey bill on it. And um, the there's then identifiers about how you would tell a rook from a jackdaw. Jackdaws have got the pale blue eyes and they've got a much stubbier, blacker beak, that black beak compared to the rook. So it just got a little bit of information about what the birds eat um, and uh, a little bit of information, a few lines on how to identify that bird. So just enough to get them interested and help them identify the different species. Exactly, Derek, exactly. Yeah, so just enough really that that they would have beginning to develop the skills required maybe to do more bird watching. And like, I mean, 22 garden birds, if you can get your head around them, you know the sort of things you should be looking at. You should be looking at plumage, you should be looking at particularly the bill because the bill is always a key um, for what it eats. So fine little thin bill, it's going to be an insect eater. Thicker bill, it's going to, it's going to be a seed eater. And they're all like clues to the identity of the bird. You brought this out when? Just remind me again. God, it was um, it was 2014, I think it was, at the end of the day. Yeah, it would have been 2014. So, yeah, Elva is now, uh, she's, a, she's a bit bigger than eight now at this stage. She's writing her own books. <laughs> <laughs> and tell me, are you, still getting, are you still getting royalties? Because it's still for sale in the Birdwatch Ireland shop, is it not, Niall Hatch? <laughs> oh, oh, it is. It's one of our best sellers. It's, it's a book that I've recommended to many, many people because, uh, as we've been hearing, it is the perfect introduction to garden birds for anyone who wants to dip their toes in those waters and to, to know that like it, it's not overwhelming. I think that the key to it is that simplicity. Um, that's the beauty of it because you're not overwhelmed with information. Uh, there's just uh, information about how each bird looks and what it eats and a lovely full page photograph of each bird or if there's a difference between the male and the female, as we heard, both are depicted. Uh, and I think that that's that's all that's required and it's it's not all that overwhelming at all so yeah it's it's, it's been a, a constant bestseller for us and through our shop and we're delighted to have it delighted to hear uh, that <laughs> can, can i ask you how, how did you how did you come to select the species that are in it because it features 22 bird species did you have to make some difficult decisions with their space constraints or how to have how did you work that out well, I just basically, um, I mean, the Birdwatch Ireland, uh, you know, does this wonderful uh, garden bird survey every every year. So, and that's replicated in the UK as well. So I just looked at the uh, the common species, the most common species that were found in everybody's garden. Um, and I just took the 22 most common that I thought would, you know, you basically cover the, the, the range of habitats that people would find in their garden and would be ones that they'd be very likely to come across. So you could, of course, you could make it bigger. But, um, you know, I thought that that would be enough species for a beginner to start with. Oh, I think you're absolutely correct with that. Yes, it, it, it's it's not intimidating in any way. It's just the right selection. And I have to say, they're exactly the species that I would have chosen myself to get people interested in it. And then, of course, what we find with this book, too, is that it tends to be a sort of a, a gateway for a lot of people then who go on to, to purchase other field guides and, and, and identification guides to birds. I think it's probably been responsible for introducing more people to the wonderful world of birds than, than any other book that we stock. Uh, and, uh, and and I think that's, that, that, that's its, real, its real beauty, I think. The fact that um, it, it's really accessible and perfect for perfect for children, perfect for adults, perfect for everybody, really. And the fact is, as well, you wouldn't need to know anything at all about birds before going in to get this book. For someone who's looking for the, their first bird book, no matter what age they are, this is the one I would recommend. It's perfect okay. for any Irish garden. Thank you. That's that's great feedback <laughs> to hear that it's uh, it's getting such a good uptake. Any more planned for this series? Are you going to do it for any other types of birds other than garden birds? Well, I'd love to do waders and um, to do wetland birds. And it's been on my mind and I've kind of started doing uh, doing something along those lines. Uh, and I've started doing a seaweed book as well. But oh, you know the way it is, life, it's hard to do everything. So, But um, certainly this year I, I'm going to put maybe my shoulder to the metal and and uh, and get get the wading book done. It's get the waders done, but how can you convince yes. me to like seaweed? Yeah, so I suppose it's 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 like everything. You just um, to to start tuning into it and see there's all the lovely green seaweeds and red seaweeds and brown seaweeds, and each of them has got their own simple characteristics and flavors and 
Yeah, I could definitely write a book on seaweeds. Well, do, and come back and tell us all about it when you have. It was lovely to talk to you today, so thank you very much indeed. (laughs) Thank you very much too, and thanks for all the lovely feedback on my book. I appreciate it. You're very welcome, and you can find more details on Mary's book on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, Niall, I want to talk to you about the friendliest Robin I've ever encountered. For years, I've been trying to get really close to Robins, but never succeeded until the other day. I was in Cork at Harper's Island Wetland Reserve with Jim Wilson. And just as I was about to enter the hide, this Robin came along and I got within 10 centimetres and I got a lovely photograph, which you can see on the website. Now, I know that Robins have a reputation for being very friendly, the farmer's friend, etc. But they've also got a reputation for being very aggressive, particularly to each other, and especially at this time of year. Why is it warming to me, is what I want to know. Why isn't it fighting me off, thinking I might be a challenge to it in the mating stakes? That's very true because we're getting into the start of the nesting season now for robins and that means that both the male and the female are getting very aggressive indeed. However, that aggression is mainly reserved for other robins. Robins don't like each other and obviously during the breeding season the male and female come together. It takes two to tango after all and they will mate and the female will lay eggs and both the male and the female will incubate those and raise the chicks. So they tolerate each other during the breeding season. But woe betide any other robin that dares to come anywhere near their territory because both of them will fight him or her her and they'll often fight to the death. Uh, now, of course, when it comes to humans, um, it would be a pretty tough Robin that tried to fight a human to the death. I don't think they'd manage that. They've actually learned to tolerate us. They realise that we're not such a threat. And indeed, that other birds are scared to come close to us so that Robins can actually exploit food that's close to human beings, which is something that other birds won't do. And also, one of the theories behind this too is they know that predators like sparrowhawks or foxes won't come close to humans either, that they're frightened of us, and so that we offer some degree of protection to a robin. So a robin standing close to a human is a safe robin. No predator is going to grab it. So that's uh, one of the theories behind why they're so tame and tolerant around humans. We like to think, of course, that means that they're affectionate towards us, that they love us or have strong feelings of friendship towards us. Uh, That's probably not the case. We're a convenient object uh, in their territory or in their environment that offers them protection and a safe way to feed. Uh, But I'm all for that. That's great because the fact is that they're beautiful to look at, they're beautiful to listen to, and it brightens anyone's day to have a robin come to them as close as that, that, that one did it for you at Harper's Island and your photographs of it were up on the website and it just shows just how close they would have been because you took those with your phone I think wasn't I it? I did and I got about oh I'd say 10 centimetres and this bird just sat there in fact at one point it just tilted its head to look right down the camera lens if it can look right down the camera lens because the eyes are on the side of the head are they not? <laughs> yeah that's that's right yeah they see the world in a very different way to the way that we do but um, well maybe it knew it was posing maybe it knew it would be <laughs> featured posing. on the website <laughs> <laughs> Anyway have a look at it rte.ie forward slash mini but the other thing I want to talk to you about that particular journey was when I was travelling down to Cork. Between Newbridge and Port Leisha, I saw six buzzards circling in the sky, not beside each other, but within perhaps maybe oh, a kilometre or so of each other. But after Port Leisha, I didn't see any at all. But between Newbridge and Port Leisha, I saw six buzzards. What were they doing? Were they looking for prey on the ground? Well, buzzards are always on the lookout for prey. So when they're circling and if they happen to see some, some food like a rabbit or a rat or maybe roadkill, of course they'd be tempted to go down for that. But this time of year is when we do tend to see buzzards circling more in the sky than usual. And that's because they have love on their minds. They're looking for a mate. They're looking to establish a territory. They're looking to show off at the prowess of flying in the sky to impress a potential mate. So that's what they're doing. So this is the time of year when it's probably easiest to see the buzzards circling in the sky and also to hear them as well. They have this amazing call. It sounds like a cat mewing in the distance. So if you imagine a mewing cat with a bit of echo added to it, that's what the buzzard's call sounds like. So if it sounds like there's a cat, except it's 100 foot up in the air, um, it's probably a buzzard flying overhead. And it has been really interesting and really welcome to see the, the resurgence of that particular species in Ireland over the last couple of decades, because it's our largest common bird of prey and I'm glad I can finally say that it is common because it has been spreading rapidly and it's interesting that you noted that it was particularly numerous up until you got to Port Leisha and then when you go further south and west of that not so many mm-hmm. that actually ta- tallies yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're harder to see. Now, they are present in those areas. They are breeding in all 32 counties of Ireland once again. But the population density is much, much higher in, in Ulster and in Leinster than it is in Connacht or Munster. Uh, so uh, although they are breeding in Cork and in Tipperary and counties like that, uh, they, they are thinner on the ground. But that is changing. year Every year, year after year, we're seeing more and more of them coming back. And that's been, been a really welcome to see. Where, where I live in North County Wicklow, I see them on a daily basis now over my garden or if I'm driving on the, on the road along the end 
10-11 around the M50 there are always a few of them perched on the lamppost or soaring overhead um, looking for roadkill or looking for, for, for rats or rabbits uh, but now at this time of year are seeing them even more and calling because they're looking for mates so if anyone wants to see a buzzard now's the time to do it and they're quite easy to, ident- to identify because they have this very broad wingspan yeah. and these sort of white patches on under the wing and That's around spread That's what caught my tail. attention was the white patches because when you look up you see a lot of crows, rooks and ever all sorts flying above and it's only when I got closer to realise no they're not rooks Yes, they're, 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 they're a good bit larger than rooks as well. But that yes, that patterning under the wing is very distinctive. Now, buzzards can be quite variable in colour. Most of them are, are sort of a mottled brown colour, but underneath the wing, they're all more or less the same. They have these dark wings with a white patch sort of where the wrist of the wing would be uh, and, and, and a little dark spot beside that. So that's a good way to identify them. Uh, and also that sort of circling soaring that they do. They, they'll, they'll, they'll soar on a thermal of warm, rising air. Like uh, and they, <laughs> Precisely like vultures, absolutely. And we have one of those in Ireland now at the moment as well, the Egyptian vulture in Roscommon. Yeah. Oh, in Roscommon. Yeah, it's in, it's in Roscommon. There's been an Egyptian vulture. Well, it's been in Ireland as far as we know since uh, since last July. It was first spotted in County Donegal and then it was seen the month after that in August briefly in County Mayo. Then it disappeared completely until someone refound it again just on New Year's Eve in Roscommon. Disappeared again and then it was refound uh, just, um, just over a week ago actually uh, and it's the first of its kind ever to be seen in Ireland. And uh, we know actually a bit about the history of that bird. It, we know that it, it actually was seen in the Isles of Scilly off, off the coast of Cornwall uh, back in June of last year. The very same bird because we, we could tell from pictures of its feather patterns. So we know that that bird um, has, has has arrived from the continent most likely from France and has headed up through the Scilly Isles and into Ireland. Uh, so a genuine wild bird, a real turn up for the books. And big though buzzards are, the Egyptian vulture is even bigger. A massive wingspan of about two metres. So an enormous bird. Okay, moving along. Niall, I want you to tell me a little bit about the status of woodpeckers in Ireland, if you would. Well, the, the woodpecker, and specifically the great spotted woodpecker, has become a real success story in Ireland. So famously, until quite recently, Ireland had no woodpeckers, which is very strange because everywhere else in Europe does, with the exception of, of Iceland, uh, even the Canary Islands have, have woodpeckers, uh, but Ireland didn't. And the great spotted woodpecker, a very common species just across the water from us in Britain. Uh, there are occasionally a vagrant bird thought to be maybe for, um, coming down from Scandinavia would turn up, but they never stayed to breed. They never stayed for very long and they were very hard to see. But then in around 2005, it was noted that there were woodpeckers drumming in woodlands both in County Wicklow and in County Down. Uh, and research showed that when, when blood samples were taken and feather samples and they were analysed, that the, the uh, County Down birds had come across from Scotland and the County Wicklow birds had come across from Wales. And they had flown across the Irish Sea and that actually tallied with a big population expansion in Britain. Uh, the population density increased and what we think happened was young woodpeckers were finding it hard to get a territory and normally woodpeckers are very reluctant to cross water. It's very difficult for them to cross because they're very flapping flight uh, they're no good at gliding like some other birds would be so crossing water is difficult for them and they're reluctant to do it but it got to a point where there was no territory available they think in, in those parts of Scotland and Wales so the woodpeckers had no choice but to come across the Irish Sea and colonise uh, the land here and we think that those birds may even have been able to see Ireland from where they were because from you can, you can certainly see um, sometimes on a clear day from places like Snowdonia National Park in Wales you can see uh, some of the Mountains in Wicklow, uh, so and, and and also with County Down, it's actually it's actually quite easy to see across. So it's thought that's why they colonised. And since then, they have slowly but surely been expanding. We know they're going into more and more counties all the time, and we're finding also in in the in the Irish Garden Bird Survey that people do for Birdwatch Ireland each winter, more and more gardens are now reporting them. It's it's still a very scarce bird in Ireland, but it is becoming a feature of our landscape, and it looks like they're certainly here to stay. Let's hope so. Let's talk to a man now who happens to know. A great deal about woodpeckers. He's a fantastic ornithologist based in County Wicklow, an old friend of Niles. And he has written a book called A Life in the Trees, a personal account of the great spotted woodpecker, which we featured on the programme some time ago. His name is Declan Murphy and he joins us now from County Wicklow. Hello, Declan. How are you today? Hello, Derek. How are you? All good, Declan. Can you begin by describing the great spotted woodpecker for our listeners? Well, it's an unusual looking bird. It's kind of different to an awful lot of others in the sense that we only have uh, one of the bird really that perches on the side of trees. Most birds perch on a branch, but this bird perches on the side of the tree. The only other bird we have is a tree creeper that does that. So that's the first thing when you actually look up and you see one, it's perched to the side and even the silhouette is quite distinctive. So when you actually get to, to see the plumage, it's basically black and white at a first glance. It has black and a mosaic of black and white checkerboard patterns across the back and it has a white 
uh, underparts on the stomach. Now, apart from the black and white, there's two very distinctive red patches. The first is under the tail, and both birds have that. The male and the female have that very distinctive crimson. And the male bird also has a small patch of red on the very back of his head, where we call the nape, which is just at the back of the neck. So black and white is the basic colouring with a bit of red when you see it well and closely. Declan, I've been watching woodpeckers with you uh, many times in the Wicklow woodlands and they're a species that fascinates me as well. Do you find now that people are coming to get to know this species more? And if people are, are looking or listening out for them at this time of the year, what should they be watching for? Well, definitely, as you said there, uh, Niall, the population has increased. Uh, when I think back to when I wrote the book first, um, the very first year we only found a couple of pairs and that went up to the number of the first year they bred I think we actually only found uh, 11 nests in all of Wicklow and they were only in Wicklow at that point so that was in 11 nests in Ireland but that has rapidly increased as you uh, pointed out they've now expanded into nearly all the counties of um, Ireland so they're as far down as Clare and they're up into Sligo so at this stage it's actually impossible to know how many we actually have where we said before that there might be 20 or 30 pairs and that increased. At this stage, we can't even count all the birds in Wicklow. So uh, a lot more people are seeing them and a lot more people are hearing them. And as you said, they're coming into the Garden Bird Survey. So a lot of people are seeing these on their peanut feeders during the winter and even all uh, through the spring. So they're recognising them. Uh, the sound is also very distinctive. Woodpeckers, unlike other birds which sing, woodpeckers don't sing. But what they do in the spring to proclaim their territory is they do this, what we call drumming. And what drumming is, is both the male and the female strike the tree very, very fast, up to 14 times a second. And that produces a real rattle, a staccato that goes... And it's quite far carrying. And on a clear day, you can actually hear it up to a kilometre away. It all depends on the tree they're using. If they're using a live tree, like an oak, that is growing well and has very dense wood, the sound won't carry. It's a bit like sort of hitting a rock. It doesn't go too far. But if you've got a dead tree, and they do like that, they like to find a dead tree or a dead branch, it's like hitting a hollow pipe or a hollow branch. And that really travels. So it varies from a sort of a sound to a real that really carries out. And unlike other birds where the male usually just proclaims the territory, the female does the drumming as well. And that caught us, that was one of the first things that really confused us when they first colonised. Because we just assumed that male birds did the drumming. And then we used to have two birds drumming very close and we'd get excited and say, oh, there's two males coming in and they're going to compete. And then we'd look at them and see they were male and female. So they actually do a duet, which is quite unusual with birds. As you know, um, the robin is a very distinctive one that has a, both birds sing, but there's not too many other birds where male and female sing. And that's part of the things which make them interesting. They just have different habits to, you know, the way they feed, the way they sing to proclaim a territory, and the fact that male and female do it. So it's all these little differences that just make them a fascinating species to study. And that drumming that they do, which which it takes the place of their song, it has the same purpose as the song of a robin or a blackbird. It's them proclaiming a territory and trying to, to attract a mate and staking a claim over a particular area. And what birds do is when when they're singing, or in the case of the woodpeckers, when they're drumming, they they tend to do that only where necessary. If they don't get any challenge, or if they find a mate and, and then no other birds challenge them, why, why would they waste time doing that? And they stop. So I think that what's been happening with these woodpeckers in Ireland for the initial phase of their colonisation, they've been a lot quieter and drumming for a shorter period of time than their counterparts in Britain or on the continent. But what I think is starting to happen now is as these birds are becoming more widespread and the population is building up, woodpeckers finally, they don't have it all to themselves anymore. There's a bit of competition over these territories, which means that uh, the drumming tends to be a bit more prolonged. And as time goes on, I think more people are going to hear it. That's certainly something that people have been reporting to me at least. Yes, definitely. No, you, you really can, um, were accurate there in that in the first few years, as I said, there was only 11 nests in all of Wicklow and some of them were like three, four, five kilometres apart. So as you say, they might have drummed once and got no response. So there's no point in carrying it on. But now the density has increased and where we used to find one territory in a woodland, now we're finding two or three and some of them back very closely onto each other. So yes, they are actually having to drum an awful lot more to make the division between the two territories. 
But I'm not actually convinced that all the drumming is to proclaim territories. Now, that's just my personal opinion, my personal observations, because a couple of times I've heard male and female on adjacent trees very early in the morning, and the drumming is actually very soft. And if you're under the tree, you'll hear it. But if you go a couple of hundred metres away, you won't. And the very fact that two of them are drumming right beside each other doesn't really... That's, I think you'd probably say that that's actually quite unusual. You wouldn't see that too much. You'd never see a male and female robin beside each other singing. So I kind of wonder, is some of the drumming, when both birds are doing it, more of a, a strengthening the bond between the two of them? Because they only hear it early in the year when, the, when they've paired and getting ready to nest. So I think there's a mixture there. And the male does it, definitely he's proclaiming territory. But when the female joins in, I'm not too sure what's happening there. And I don't think in some of these cases, we just won't ever know what they're doing. We can only speculate, really. One of the things that I think is is most wonderful about having these woodpeckers now in Ireland, uh, apart from the fact that they're beautiful birds in their own right and really fascinating, is that they create nesting opportunities for other birds. Because here in Ireland, we have a very low level of tree cover, one of the lowest in all of Europe, uh, and even fewer dead trees. And from a wildlife point of view, dead and decaying trees are wonderful because they support all sorts of insect life. But also they have cavities in them that birds like blue tits um, and birds like pied flycatcher, a very scarce breeder in Ireland, they can nest in. And the thing that the, that woodpeckers are doing now is by, by making holes in trees, they're also inadvertently providing nesting cavities for some of these scarcer birds in the Wicklow woodlands and also roosting sites for bats and other threatened creatures. Have you noticed any of that yourself when you've been exploring the Wicklow mountains? Yes, we've definitely come across some species that have colonise the nest holes before the woodpeckers have started. So you'll get a wood... Woodpeckers generally don't start laying their eggs until the end of April, really the third, fourth week of April. And they might use the, the nest hole going in and out. But some of our species nest well before that. And we have seen a few species, great tit as one, and we've gone back to nest holes and said, oh, we'll go back and see are the woodpeckers using it. And you see a great tit going in and out. And a starling is another one that has colonised some of them, which um, as an amber listed species, I suppose, is actually quite beneficial. Now, as bats, as you pointed out, it's quite an interesting one because before the woodpecker colonised here, and this is a point that we often have to make to people because the, they did colonise naturally, as you pointed out, they came across the Irish Sea. But just prior to their arrival, there was the, the idea put forward of reintroducing them. And the purpose of reintroducing them wasn't necessarily to increase the biodiversity of our bird life, but because over in England, some of the bat species, including one or two of the very rare bat species, were using the nest holes. And the whole idea of the reintroduction program that was proposed was actually to bring the bat to save the bats. And like some of us were kind of saying that, well, you know, if it was suitable for woodpeckers, they'd be here. So reintroducing, like reintroduction programs aren't always a great success. And certainly woodpeckers, I'm not too sure how they would have introduced them because I don't know how they could possibly have taken the young out of the nests and reared them and transported several dozen woodpeckers over. But um, I don't know have any bats in Ireland actually availed of the things. I suppose like some of the nest holes are used several years in a row. But the one I studied for the book, the actual same tree was used for, at this stage, there's a new hole just built or just excavated this year, um, which I only saw yesterday. I'm delighted with that. Uh, but this is the ninth year out of 11 years they've used the same tree. And they've used some of the holes three or four years in a row. So obviously there's no bats using the holes in that tree. But some of the other ones just get used the first year. And we've just no way of knowing without scaling the tree and exploring into it, which naturally is very difficult if some of the nest holes are 10, 15 metres high. It's very difficult to get up. So I'm not too sure how we'll ever find out how, whether or not bats are availing them, but definitely some of the birds do. I mean, definitely there's quite a number of bird species using them. Declan, you mentioned there about how high up these nest holes are and, and, and they would seem to be secure fortresses. But are there any vulnerabilities there? Do these woodpeckers have to worry about any predators when they're nesting? Oh, they do. And I think that why they didn't colonise here in earlier years is very much linked in to a predator which absolutely loves to feed on them. And that is my favourite mammal of them all in Ireland, the pine marten. And the pine marten is interesting because it was exterminated from Wicklow back in the early 1900s. And I actually saw the first pine marten here and photographed the first pine martens in Wicklow. And they only actually colonised Wicklow in about 2004, 
2004, 2005. And the woodpeckers arrived in 2007. And pine marten population was very low for the first few years. And now it's exploded. They are all over Wicklow. And they do prey on the woodpeckers. They actually catch the adult woodpeckers when they come to the nest holes. I found, as I described in my book, I actually found a female woodpecker dead on the ground and saw a pine marten running off. So it had caught an adult. And every year we're finding an awful lot of nests killed by pine martens. And how they do that is an awful lot of the nests are in old rotten trees. And the young, in my opinion, I know this sounds a bit strange, they almost go against the purpose of being in a nest hole to protect themselves. They're very vocal. They call and call and call to draw attention. That's how we actually find the nests. We go out and listen for the young. They're very noisy. But that has a disadvantage because that also alerts a pine marten. And a pine marten, like, as well as feeding on the ground, can go up a tree. They can go up 15, 20 metres. And what they do is they go to the back of the nest hole. They don't go in the front. And they actually rip the bark out if it's an old uh, tree. They actually excavate and just rip the whole thing out and just take the young out. And usually when they're doing this, at that stage, it's usually late May. By the time the woodpeckers are that noisy. And at that stage, all the, the pine martens have their kits. And I've photographed them at that time. The mother will be out with her three or four kits running after her. And I presume she just kind of comes to the tree with the kits. Uh, hears them all calling, all the woodpeckers. Goes up the tree, rips it open and basically just drops all the woodpeckers one by one down onto the ground to feed her hungry kits. So... The reason I kind of think that's quite very, very tied into the woodpecker population is they colonised when the pine marten was at its lowest. And I think if the woodpeckers were only colonising Ireland now, they'd never succeed. Because we've found five or six nests a year destroyed. And if there was only 11 nests the first year, I don't think they'd ever have got established if the, wood, if the pine marten population was as high. I think they were very, very lucky. And I think in earlier years, going back to the 1900s, that's why the birds just couldn't colonise. Because as you know, as you said there, just small numbers come across first. It's not like there's a wave of woodpeckers as several hundred of them come across. There's only three or four the first year, maybe the second year, another ten. I don't think they would have stood a chance if the population of pine martens was as high as it was now. So I think we're very, very lucky that they managed to establish themselves. Of course, you mentioned there about predators and people are often surprised to find that great spotted woodpeckers are predators in their own right because they will sometimes attack the nests of other birds. And in Britain, they're notorious sometimes for drilling into nest boxes. Is this something we've started to see in Ireland yet? I haven't actually come across that. Um, you're quite right. They're, they're, they prey on blue tits, which is uh, the blue tits um, often nest in nest boxes in the garden. And the grey spotted woodpeckers in uh, England, the population is so high, a lot of them nest in gardens and in suburban areas, unlike in Ireland where they don't. They're really confined to woodland. And they go down and they don't, again, they don't go in the, the front of the nest box where the hole is. They go to the, they really know where the young are. And they go down to the very bottom corners and drill a hole in through there and take out all the blue tits. And they'll eat the entire clutch. Now there was, one of the nests was seen over, the um, one of the other bird watchers was watching it. And the woodpecker arrived with meat, definitely. It arrived with meat. It had red and some sort of feather on it, but we never managed to identify what it was. So we don't actually know, uh, was it a blue tit or what it was, but I don't know, will, will that happen? I, I don't know, will it? It certainly might make woodpeckers popular in some of the gardens if people are putting up nest boxes and then the woodpeckers coming in and killing all the young birds. But that is just part of the food chain. We have to accept that. The pine martin's not doing anything wrong. It's kind of feeding on the woodpeckers and the woodpeckers aren't necessarily doing anything wrong when they're feeding on the blue tits. That's just the way the balance of nature is maintained. And of course, in Britain and France and Germany and many other European countries, all of these species coexist perfectly well side by side. So the, those small bird populations cope perfectly well with woodpeckers. All of them thrive and all of them remain very common birds. Uh, and of course, this is the only woodpecker we currently have in Ireland. But across the water in Britain, there are another two species that they have there. They have the lesser spotted woodpecker, which is a really dinky little thing. It's, it's, not, it's not all that much bigger than a sparrow. And it's a perfect little, little miniature woodpecker. And also the green woodpecker, which um, is a bright green bird with red on its head spends a lot of time on the ground feeding on ants of all things so it's it's um, less tied to the trees than other woodpeckers although it's still often found in trees do you think that either of those two species might be set to colonize Ireland at any stage or will we just have this one woodpecker species going forward i think definitely we'll only have the one woodpecker species and 
I think we can confidently say that because the green woodpecker, first of all, doesn't feed on trees um, the way the grey spotted does. It actually feeds primarily on ants. It's kind of confined to the south of England and the southeast where they have an awful lot of breckland, which is um, a sandy sort of soil that has an awful lot of species of ant that we don't have. And they feed on the ground. And we just don't have that habitat over here at all. So I, I couldn't see them certainly colonising it. Um, they, they don't even go you know, f- far north. They're not up into Scotland or anything like that. Whereas the great spotted woodpecker is up in Scotland. So there's a very clear division between the distribution of that species and its food related. So they certainly won't come over. And the population of lesser spotted woodpeckers is actually declining rather than increasing. So as you pointed out earlier, the population had reached a point the great spotted woodpeckers had to expand and move out. Their territories were full completely in England, whereas the territories aren't full in the with the lesser spotted woodpecker and it's much, much scarcer. So I don't think they'll be ever under the same pressure to move out of England, whereas definitely the great spotted was. It just was a part of natural thing. I suppose what might be interesting is that there is a very occasionally reports of woodpeckers from a lot further away, and that's over in America. And we have had a member of the woodpecker family here, the yellow-bellied sapsucker, which is a totally different species of woodpecker, and it managed to fly 3,000 miles and arrive over here down at Cape Clear in October many, many years ago. Now, I suppose the chances of two yellow-bellied sapsuckers flying over here is very, very slim. And England has also had a second woodpecker species from America called the Northern Flicker. And But again, these are vagrants, just one or two, that get, get disorientated when they're migrating. They're migratory woodpeckers, unlike ours, which are residential. They're migrating from North America down towards South America. Um, they get disorientated, the young birds. They fly out into the Atlantic. They, they get caught up in a storm or depression and get directed over towards Ireland. But it was certainly it would be very interesting if that ever happened. Uh, but I think that would nearly be more likely than the green woodpecker coming over. <laughs> Who knows, maybe we'll end up with Woody the Woodpecker here someday. Well, just out of curiosity, Declan or Niall, do you know which species Woody the Woodpecker was? Well, I, I believe it was the pileated woodpecker. That's what I've heard anyway. Although, it, to be honest, it doesn't really look like that. So there's a lot of artistic license taken. So like a lot of woodpeckers, the pileated woodpecker has red on its head, but the body is black and white and Woody doesn't really look like that. So yeah, it, does, it doesn't make the same sound either. So a lot of artistic license, I think. I have to say, listening to both of you was a real treat. Just before you go, Declan, I noticed that John Borman wrote the foreword to your book. Is that the film director, John Borman? It is indeed. Um, it, he lives up here in Wicklow and uh, I asked, he actually has woodpeckers on his land. Ah. So John Borman is very, very well known. He's produced over 40 films. He's retired now. Well, he thought he'd retired, but he wrote a lovely book, John Borman's Nature Diary, which was only published last year, written during COVID, which is a lovely book. So he hasn't given up completely. Oh, we must get him on. And, yeah, and I did ask him to do the forward, and he wrote, a very, as Niall would say, a very interesting forward, a very unusual forward. Certainly not the type of forward that I think has been in any other book. And John has been an absolute great, uh, I suppose I could almost call him a mentor, that he read the first book and then wrote that. But he actually helped and directed the writing in many ways of the second book, The Spirit of the River, which actually a lot of it was written on his estate. Mm. That's just the way it came about. But even the name of the second book, The Spirit of the River, was actually chosen by John Moore Borman. So he's been very much an inspiration in both my books. Didn't happen to come across Excalibur, did you by any chance? Well, would you believe that's one of that's one of the great things. I actually was with him one day and the Excalibur sword was there. Oh, the Excalibur really? sword. Oh, no. And I I actually asked him, I said, John, I have to can I hold it? And I held it up as they did in the film where it was in the Glendalock Lake and it was one of the best moments I've ever been with him and it's a very, very big sword. Oh, fantastic. Well, look, lovely to talk to you. And that book, again, details can be found on our website, which is rte.ie forward slash me. There goes Declan Murphy. Thank you, Declan. Talk to you again. Bye. Thank you very much, Derek. Bye. Bye. Oh, Declan is absolutely fantastic, Niall. What a find. Oh, absolutely. I've known Declan for many, many years. We've been in Birdwatch Ireland together as members for a long time. He used to work with us in the, in the office as well. And uh, yeah, great birdwatcher, great author. Uh, pleasure to know him. No, and it's a pleasure to listen to people who really know what they're talking about. Just sit back and listen because it, you learn from that. It's just such... Anyway, it was very pleasurable. Now, John Bella Riley, our researcher, has joined me in the studio because he's here to tell you that you should stop sending in photographs for the RTE Ion Nature Wildlife Photography Competition because the closing date has passed. John 
John, when was the closing date? So the closing date was 12 noon on Friday, Derek. That was last Friday, the 4th of March. That's right. So no more pictures. So no more pictures. So we would um, ask people to save themselves the trouble <laughs> on taking the time to send stuff in. Stuff that like is, is, is a very important image to them because unfortunately it won't be included in the shakedown. Not in the shakedown. No, not in the RTI nature competition. But if they're sending in photographs now, we might put them on our social media outlets. So we do have some pictures to peruse. Now, they've been up there for a while, but we're just re-establishing them now. So talk me through them, if you would, please. We've got yeah. three. Yeah, that's right, Derek. We post images of our brilliant marine life, insects, mammals and birds against the beautiful backdrop of the Irish landscape regularly on our Facebook and Twitter feeds. Um, Some of the images caught our eye recently include one by Quiva Tyndall. Um, She is from Swords and living in Mullingar and here she describes her image. Hi, my name is Kiva Tyndall. I'm 27 years old. I took the photos of the red poles in Loch Daravara. I went for a walk along one of the new walkways in Daravara when I took the photo. Very beautiful, pleasant day. Lots of different sounds of birds. It was just the red poles that caught my eye and managed to catch it through the lens. So it turned out to be a really beautiful photo and I'm delighted with it. They are a little brown bird mostly. They have a little red cap on their head and they almost have a kind of a pale pink breast to them. It's actually the first time I came in contact with the red poles. Um, It's the first time I'd seen them in person. I'd seen a lot of photos online, but that was why they particularly caught my eye was it was the first time I had actually seen one in person, never mind getting an actual photo of one. So big achievement. Another bird ticked off the list of things I, I have photographed to date. Lovely stuff. Nile. A really charming photo by Quiva here of a really charming little bird. Uh, Redpole is a very small little member of the finch family. It's kind of brown and streaky, except for this beautiful flash of red it has on the forehead, which is what gives it its name, because pole is an old English word for forehead. If you think of a, an opinion pole that was originally like a head oh. count or an election pole. So Redpole, red forehead. And it's a really charming image because one of these these birds, there's two of them in the picture, one is, is sort of hanging down on a catkin. It's obviously been in the middle of feeding, while the other one in front showing off its lovely red chest and the red flash in front of its head. Lovely little birds and this is the time of year people might see them in their garden so do keep an eye out for a little brown streaky bird with red on its forehead. That's your red pole. John, number two. Very good. Chris McKenna is from Athai. He has always been interested in nature and here Chris describes his image. Hi, my name is Chris McKenna. I'm from Athai. I've always had an interest in nature, especially birds from an early age due to being walked across the fields with my father as a child. He used to point out the different wildlife to us. So it stemmed from there. So the picture I sent in is a picture of a kestrel being mobbed by a rook. I thought it was a nice photo to get uh, because it showed the size difference just to show how small kestrels actually are in comparison to a rook. When most people would have seen a rook, they might not have seen a kestrel. So it was a nice comparison shot just to give people an idea of the size. In the picture, what we see is a kestrel who was hunting in the area flying by and the rook is mobbing him. It's called mobbing. It's when they kind of chase them away or aggravate them or annoy them really. Um, So it's just a nice snapshot of the, the rook coming up underneath the kestrel to try and chase him out of the area. This is the first time I managed to capture it on camera because I'm not usually bringing the camera with me. I normally have my binoculars, but I was just lucky that I had the camera that day. I've seen it a lot. You see it generally with a lot of um, birds of prey. When they come into an area, the crows in the area, rooks and jackdaws and grey crows will generally chase them and mob them. But uh, it was nice to get it on camera for a change. Yeah, so the kestrel is getting mobbed by a rook. Mobbed, Nile. Yes, it's a great word, isn't it, John? Uh, it basically means hassled and harassed. So you sometimes see this with birds of prey because the, the kestrel, as we were talking about earlier in the programme, is a member of the falcon family. And crows and other birds see this as a bit of a threat, even though kestrels don't prey on crows. And indeed, the rook is much bigger than the kestrel in the photograph, which is, which is really clear from the image that Chris sent us in. Uh, but still, when they see one, they want to harass it and annoy it. And it's thought that this is a way to show the bird of prey that it has lost the element of surprise. Because these birds, 
birds depend on this element of surprise to catch their prey. So the crows, and in this case, the rook, which is a type of crow, is basically showing the kestrel, I see you, I know where you are, you may as well move on to a new area because you're not going to get any luck here because I'm ruining all your hunting attempts. But also what it'll be doing, it'll be calling for reinforcements and it'll want other rooks to come in, maybe jackdaws and hooded crows and magpies as well, to gang up on this bird of prey and chase it out of the area. So the last one, John, is a video. The last one is a video and um, a very a very beguiling video sent in by Yvonne Cross from Tiburi, living in Cork City. Here Yvonne describes her journey into the video that she shot. Hi Derek, my name is Yvonne Cross. Um, I'm a teacher from Tip originally and I live in Cork. Um, I'm teaching in St. Patrick's Girls School in Cork. I sent you a video of a very unusual scene I came upon. It was a very, very misty day. I came around a bend near Watergrass Hill in Cork and there was a house absolutely surrounded by crows. So the crows were flying all around the house and they were sitting on the rooftop, they were on the fence, they were on the wall, they were swarming around the house. And what was particularly interesting was the other houses nearby, the crows were nowhere near them. Um, and I suppose it was really like a scene from Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. So I'd never seen anything like it before. I'd seen, um, you know, with the starlings where they, they go through the sky together. But it was just the sheer volume of birds. They were just everywhere. And I suppose the mist really, really added to it. Um, but there were just so many of them. It was amazing. So a scene from the birds, Nile Hatch. Oh, dear. Yes, it's really amazing to see that many circling around a house like that, isn't it? And it's great that Devon managed to capture it so well. Um, when we see crows doing this, because that's what's depicted there in the video, uh, people often get worried. I think it's you know, a sign of the apocalypse or the end times. But that's actually very normal behaviour. Crows gather together in large numbers to sleep in communal roosts. It's really safety in numbers. And so that's what I'm sure was happening here. These birds were gathering together shortly before going to sleep. And what they're doing is they're assessing each other's fitness. They're trying to exchange information of where the good feeding has happened uh, that day and shortly afterwards what they'll do is they'll go into a, into a group of trees they, and they'll all go to sleep. What I love most about those communal roosts by the way is that the dominant birds in these crow roosts they'll sleep at the very tops of the trees and the less dominant or the younger birds sleep lower down and you might wonder well why does that make any difference? It's a high, well, the, yes, absolutely. Well, but you might think, well, who cares where you sleep in the tree? Well, when you realise that crows defecate during their sleep, you realise why being at the top <laughs> of the tree is the best. I always slept in the top bunk when I was a kid. <laughs> anyway, Niall, thank you very much indeed. We'll talk to you again next week, all right? Great, looking Keep forward. sending in those images. Where do they send them to, John, if they've got a nice picture to entertain us with and to share with the listeners? To Mooney at rte.ie. Thank you, John. Just remember now that the RTE Ion Nature Wildlife Photography Competition is now closed. That's all we have time for today. My thanks to our researcher, John Bellarelli, and to Niall Hatch and Declan Murphy. We'll do it all again tomorrow night in the company of Aina Nilana, Richard Collins, and Dr. Matthew Jeb. That's Mooney Goes Wild on Monday from 10 pm. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.